The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Welcome back. Well, welcome back. Welcome I hate uh, They should say welcome back to me, Dr. Fred. I'm Paul Rudy. Welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money here. I might be a little rusty. It's been, it's been a quite a couple i've missed a couple of shows due to COVID, um so i'm a little rusty it's probably still a little foggy fred <laughs> right. um i'm here with one of my regular guests dr fred gertz happy to have you here today you you bailed me out today fred yeah, good to be here call in with your questions 217-356-9397 or text us on the castle heating and cooling text line at 351-5357 you can also email your question to talk at wdws it's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results you should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, I survived it, Fred. Right. My wife got it. <laughs> you also she survived was, the election as well. Survived the election. And, uh, of course, as you know, and you probably, I, I got to imagine that you get asked a lot prior to the election, probably every election, yeah. um, what should I do? Should I, I mean, right. if I heard it once, I heard it. 50 times people very seriously asking you know uh everybody has their own visions it's right. interesting um regardless of maybe the political philosophy that you follow there there seems to be good reasons from both sides for somehow getting drawn into the today and the now and what i found a lot of people doing was spinning on kind of the worst possible outcome right for some it was trump's gonna lose or in a blue wave uh, the Senate gets taken. Uh, we're going to have new states. We're going to have a stack, a packed court. We're going to have the end of the filibuster, right. end of society as we know it. We're going to pure socialism by you know right. January twentieth. And then there's there's plenty there's plenty to worry about for other people um, uh, on the other side of the aisle. But it's just amazing to me how human nature just pulls us into the now so much that it seems to override all logic. It doesn't seem like there's any data or charts that I could give anybody to prove anything yeah. as much as that emotion. Yeah, well, I don't think we want to take too much credit, but this time we actually, the, the recommendations we had was uh, do nothing, basically. If you're, ha if you're happy uh, where you were a few months ago and your plan is in place, uh, just go with the plan, and that turned out... Uh, to be good advice, again, uh, it may be partially luck and partially that it was actually a, a good recommendation. Well, but the but, idea but, was that, uh, uh, again, uh, regardless of who won, uh, the market might go up, might go down, but it was probably still the best place to be if you were comfortable there before. And, again, it may, may actually have turned out better than most people expected. I think the uh, – uh, in, in a sense, uh, a lot of investors thought the best of all worlds was uh, – not having Trump as president, but also not having the uh, Democrats in control of Congress. So it kind of turned out uh, that way, assuming that uh, that uh, Georgia goes at least one, one Democrat. Yeah, one it, okay, let's talk about that. Um, not that this is a show about politics, but, but it is about you know being realistic. Um, it is about, about expectations. 
It strikes me when you get somebody like Joe Manchin that comes out, Senator Manchin, and says, hey, I'm not going for any of that pack court stuff. And yeah, any, you right. know, He's probably not a big gun control guy, being from West Virginia. Yeah. Uh, you know, it strikes me that even if it gets to 50-50, you got the tiebreaker. Um, 51, I'm not sure they have yeah. the 51. And so I, I, I yeah. think, I don't know what to think of Georgia, what's going to happen. Yeah. I don't have a clue. I'm not sure anybody has a clue. I don't think polls really work very well yeah. anymore. Well, I, I think, it, uh, again, uh, no one knows. But I think uh, it's very likely at least one person will, one Republican will win. That's kind of what I two. think. And the other one who has a, uh, the uh, closer race is a, actually a UI graduate, the woman who is in place. Oh, Le- Le- was it Leffler? I think so, yeah. Or something yeah. Like that. So I looked up, you know, what, of course I'm always – you know, when clients are asking you and you're, they're painting these, you know, horrible scenarios about literally going to socialism in a yeah. very short order and just the collapse of the economy and a collapse of the stock market. You know, I, I'm human, right? <laughs> it just, well, some people might think I'm human, Fred. Uh, so I look at the Standard Poor's 500 index. Well, of course, that's just a measure. I, I call that just basically a broad U.S. stock market. Somewhat broad. It's the 500 largest companies. Mm. Pretty, it's a pretty good proxy for, hey, how's the stock market doing? In the first 952 trading days of each presidency, essentially four years. And, you know, it's, it's green almost everywhere. The first four years of Reagan, 27%. Now, that was yeah. lower than I thought it would be. Yeah. But then I realized that most of his, the big strong games came in his second term. He, cause no, we well, had, actually, 92, I think, was, uh, I think 82 was the, Time when the stock market changed, we, we came. He came into a recession and basically uh, did some uh, fairly tough things and and uh, weathered the recession. And the the market took off after that. He and the federal chair, uh, right. Federal Reserve Chairman Volcker, uh, basically decided to shoot inflation in the head. Right. Right. And then they knew doing that was going to drive us into a yeah. deeper recession. But they they felt pretty strongly. Is it? Is that I think what so. it was? I'm not sure that, that they, they need I, they, to cleanse they, it system yeah, out. They weren't uh, necessarily close friends. Uh, Volcker's a Democrat and right. Reagan a Republican. But I think that uh, Carter supported uh, Volcker and and got. I think the he's the rolling. one that promoted it, didn't and, he? And, and yeah. Reagan let it go on, which I think is a, a, a testimony to the cooperation, which we may not have now. But it turned out maybe uh, uh, stronger than they ever thought. I, I don't think they ever thought it would be. Uh, 30 years of uh, right. of uh, very low inflation, but they certainly did break the, the back. Yeah, we, it would have it been hard to imagine in 1979 or 1980 or even 81, and earlier also in the 70s, uh, a 30-year period of disinflation. Yeah. It would have been unimaginable. I think like young people today have no concept of, you know, a uh, you know, twenty percent money market rates. Yeah, uh, seventeen, sixteen percent mortgages. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. When I, 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 I was just getting into investing, but the the uh, complaint back in those days was, why should I save? Uh, I, I save, and um, the stock market doesn't go up very much. I get a relatively high interest rate, but when you take into account inflation and taxation, it's basically a, a negative return. So right. it was a, a very uh, kind of uh, depressing environment at that point. And, it turned around very quickly. And then under the first President Bush, in his first four years, now this is, I can't remember if it's real returns or just nominal returns. Either way, they're pretty impressive. You think, for, you know, for George H.W. Bush, up 46%. So you figure 
Okay, yeah. that's yeah. that's pretty good. That's 10% or so plus yeah. per year. Bill Clinton, 62% in the first four years. Well, now you're getting towards 15% yeah. a year, sort of. I'm, I'm, I'm taking the benefit of rounding pretty broadly. And then you get to George W. Bush. Of course, he started in, towards the beginning of 9-11 and then, of course, the great financial crisis. But his first four years, because I probably largely because of... I probably shouldn't oversimplify it, yeah. but certainly if you come into a 9-11 first year, four yeah. years, or roughly the first four years, down 13%. Well, it's also the end of the, of the dot-com dot bubble as well. Sure, yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, it was, yeah, it was, you know, it's, a, it's always the surprises that get you, right? <laughs> History is the study of surprises, right. I guess. Uh, Barack Obama, 75%. So there you go for that socialist, yeah. you know, antichrist that everybody yeah. thought would be a disaster for the stock market. 75% gain in the first four years, pretty pretty strong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, he of course, can. you pierce the timing. And it's like you come in in 2008, yeah. and you're basically now in two, by March of 2009, the stock market bottoms yeah. and goes into a secular bull market. Yeah, it's just the idea of uh, endpoint and starting point bias. Yes, Money sure. managers always, uh, they, well, uh, my record since uh, March of uh, 2009 <laughs> is really great. Yeah. But it may not have been as great if you go back to uh, right. a year earlier. Uh, yeah, that one-year roll-off can do wonders for a track record. And Donald Trump, 44%. This is as right. of, I don't know, maybe and, and a month so ago far, or so. Uh, and since the election, uh, it's obviously Yeah, it's higher yet, well. maybe uh, 55% now. Yeah, but I, the whole point is, those are pretty impressive gains. Uh, and they, and, and okay, this isn't the study of thousand years of history, but it's yeah. saying in modern times through all kinds of different economic conditions, it's uh, political philosophy. Sometimes we had divided houses. Sometimes we had, you know, we had yeah. the whole, some presidents that had the whole gamut for a while. It's still a bad bet to bet <laughs> that against the stock market based on political right. issues. Again, I, I think I would have had some fear if it was a, a, a true blue wave where uh, you had huge majorities in both the House and the Senate for Democrats, but that's not the case. And I think, as you mentioned earlier, uh, a lot of Democrats are not going to be as uh, right. as uh, uh, ready to buy on to uh, some things that may be uh, uh, you know a little bit chancy because they have to be reelected. The people who want to, want to be reelected are the ones that probably in more uh, more competitive districts, so they're not going to vote for every uh, <laughs> uh, idea that comes along. In terms, yeah, of I, I was pretty settled that this vision that some people had, including some of my clients, about just the world sort of coming to an end, or as we know it, or or let's put it this way, uh, this time it really is different, yeah. and this 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 is the most consequential election, and it was a pretty dark view, but I, I didn't really share that view, even under the blue wave theory, because, okay, if you had a blue wave, and you had these fears that, you know, they could run the table and do whatever they want, there's still an awful lot of people you got to convince to go along with this, sure. and I, I still like to believe that most people most of the politicians, push comes to shove, uh, they want to get reelected. Sure. And, and if, if not just because they're more center than people think they are, <laughs> they're certainly more pragmatic and aren't going to do right. sign on to certain you yeah. know, things that are truly going to transform yeah. the country. I was reminded coming in today, uh, the, the Dow was within, uh, was within 20 points of uh, 30,000. Uh, 30, I went back 20 years, and there were books, uh, the Dow 36,000 yeah, and so on. I so we're actually getting close. It, it's taken uh, 20 years, not two or three years, but uh, there are all kinds of predictions. No one has come up with a prediction, though, of the Dow 
uh, hundred thousand yet. So. I did in a newsletter <laughs> years ago. Uh, I said I, I don't. Th- I wasn't trying to put the timing on it. I was just trying to. When I, I wrote a newsletter one time that said, "Look, um, I think it was in the '70s when Rex Sinkfield and Brinson Sinkfield and Brinson Sinkfield who did the stocks, bonds, bills, and inflation." I'm not sure. So okay, so you know, for the first time, it's kind of like people could see, "Wow, here's the historical return yeah. of stocks, bonds, bills, and inflation," and they projected in the '70s that. I think by 2000, the Dow would be at 10,000. Yeah. No, they, they, weren't, they were academics. They yeah. weren't really trying to sell books yeah. and, and you know, convince you to go buy stocks. They're just saying, yeah, it just kind of sort of average rates, hmm. Dow 10,000. Now, when you're doing this and the Dow is, uh, well, in the summer of 82, the Dow was at 777. Yeah. So when you're doing this and the Dow's around 1,000 or so, uh, you know, that seemed like 10,000. And so I reminded people that if we follow that same path, and probably at the time we were at 15,000 or 10,000, I showed that we'd be at Dow 50,000 yeah. at some right. point. And people look at me like, it's impossible. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what you would have said back then. And that's what continuous compounding does. And yeah. of course, that's what, you know, it's just kind of continuous compounding. Yeah, actually, there, uh, you know, people forget about compounding, but uh, John Maynard Keynes, the famous economist, wrote an article back in the. Uh, depth of the depression in the early 1930s it's called the, the you know, like future of our, our grandchildren he said our grandchildren would be so rich that uh they only work four hours a day or, or whatever and he actually was almost exactly correct about how rich he was but he wasn't correct about people wanting to take all that in leisure people are still working has he seen the millennials yet <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh yeah i think it was roger ribbitson yeah, roger, I think. so anyway the, the it's it's interesting to kibitz about that. I wrote in the last uh, this past Sunday's um, News Gazette column that I wrote about uh, Charlie uh, Munger, uh, Warren Buffett's partner. Yeah, that's like, yeah. You get the sense I'm a little bit slow today, Fred. <laughs> I really, yeah. you know, this one thing I'll tell people about COVID that I really didn't wasn't aware of. It's the focus factor really really right. leaves you, and I'm probably in my fifth week several weeks beyond yeah. when I was contagious and still having little issues focusing. Yeah. So Yeah, Charlie Munger may be the uh, Prince Charles of, yeah. Uh, yeah. of the, of the uh, uh, Berkshire Hathaway. I probably never lived to be king. You're right. But he wrote, and I thought it was such a wonderful thing, you know, the, the key to investing is to don't disrupt right. compounding or as infrequently as possible. Yeah. Uh, and I, you start thinking about compounding, and, and I wrote, where the S&P 500 was when I was born in 1959 and where it is today. It's just, it's just, it's an incredible story. Is there a part of corporate America and of free markets and capitalism? Is there a certain sense, do you think, of, of self-healing involved in corporate America that they can react to price signals quickly and they're good, they're rational and they make decisions, money goes where it's treated best, and they know how to husband it well. Well, that's true over a long term, but again, it doesn't give a lot of comfort in the in the short term. There are always things happening in some firms, uh, making something don't. The, the other thing, which is a little bit, maybe a, a slightly deceiving, is that the uh, you couldn't have, uh, have stayed with the uh, portfolio of the Dow in, in 1900 or the portfolio of the S&P right. 500 because they things come and go there. Sure. So, but if you're in an index, uh, they come and go automatically. But you can't just sit on 
the, the uh, portfolio of 1930 and, and expect that to be do all the good things we're talking about. But that doesn't mean you have to guess. You just simply uh, accept the uh, the uh, index and let the it's just uh, basically adopting a mainstream equity. Right. I'm, I'm I'm going to own either America Inc. or World Inc. Yeah. Uh, but you hit a, you hit a key word, um, and I wrote about that actually. So it's the it's it's the nowism. It's the in the short term part, and the long term is just a series of short terms. And it strikes me, looking back at history, the short term generally isn't all that good, yeah. um, in my mind. But yet. The long term, if, if you let it play out because of the wonderful nature of compounding, things tend to, to work out really well. And these two things are always at conflict. And, and I think because of recency bias and all these things, the short term tends to drive most investors' decisions. So yeah, is that what you also, notice out of just human nature? It, it, sure. And, and it's also uh, human nature is all the same. We, we probably talked about the marshmallow test. A few times where some kids just say it will give you twice as many marshmallows if you wait a certain length of time, and some kids wait and other kids don't, and the kids that wait tend to have uh, um, more interest in the future and probably invest more in themselves and maybe invest more in the market. So again, you have to overcome that uh, short-term bias against consuming now, and it's hard. Like again, going back to the uh, '70s to, to say, well. This, you know, what we talked about here would have worked perfectly, but no one knew it at the time. And you would have had to have almost beyond human patience and yeah. faith and discipline right. to see the Dow go from a thousand to a thousand over the first sixteen or seventeen years of your but, retirement. But, yeah, after a, t- you know, a ten-year period of uh, in the seventies of not much happening, right? Uh, and say, well, I'm going to invest and invest, and everything will turn out right. What well, it did, but uh, again. We didn't really know it for sure at that time. Back then, we knew a lot less, didn't we? Because yeah. that, that was really just in the late 60s, I think. Um, kind of the advent of the computer power being available right. to academics. And even people like uh, Paul Samuelson, who's one of the, probably the greatest economists of the second half of the 20th century, I had a Newsweek column, and he was talking about, well, a good thing to do is simply, uh, I don't think he said index funds, but he said invest broadly, uh, 50% in stocks and 50% in uh and bonds, and he, he said, well, I, I've done this for 10 years or so, and the two ca- accounts are basically the same, and that was in 1980. Right, right. And if you, you know, keep done that, I've done that over the next 30 years, it would not have been a good strategy. Right. So it's, 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 it's fascinating. Here's what's interesting me. Uh, we're having interesting me now. I'm telling you, I'm having a hard time with words today, Fred. Um, you have... Basically, a ten-year Treasury at somewhere around 0.8 percent, yeah. somewhere around there, plus or minus, you know, somewhere between 0.8 and 0.9 percent. Just call it less than one percent. You have the dividend yield on the broad U.S. market, pretty close to two percent. Call it 1.75 or so on the S&P yeah. 500, maybe a little more on the total U.S. market. And you have a thirty-year thirty-year tre- Treasury bond, probably at one and a half percent or so. I think yeah. last time I looked, anyway. Now, back in the after the uh, great financial crisis of 2008-2009, I was writing to my clients in my newsletter saying, look, I think this market is wildly undervalued for the certain metrics. Yeah. And those metrics were, wow, the dividend yields 2% and the 10-year treasury is at 25 almost as much as the, dividend, uh, uh, as the 10-year treasury yield. 
And the 30-year Treasury was probably in the fours at the time. But based on just certain and capitalizing earnings, wow, this market is wild. Who would ever want to own bonds when you could buy the stock market at this, yeah. this value? And by the way, this was when the other shoe was going to drop, commercial real yeah. estate. People right. were still pretty pessimistic coming out of the great financial crisis. I just didn't see it that way. So now I'm looking at, it looks like we have that on steroids. We literally can, we can get 1.75, we can get 100 basis point or 1% more per year for the next 10 years, assuming dividend yield on the S&P 500. Now, historically speaking, I think out of the last nine decades, seven out of nine of them, uh, dividends rose so much that they outpaced inflation by generally a considerable point. In the last 50 years, I think it's about by double inflation. So it's not a lock that you're going to get that 1.75% yield, but history's pretty kind to the idea. Um, Why is it I'm buying bonds uh, (laughs) other than insurance about ever insurance against ever being poor? Yeah. Well, bonds have had a, as we talked about, a a 30, uh, you know, three decade run that no one really expected. But again, uh, this is a day to maybe look back on successes, but uh, a 60, 40 portfolio, uh, going back uh, two, three, four decades—I mean, I'm not sure—but th- three decades and all the way up would have beaten almost everything yeah. available. So yeah. the, the simplest, uh, in a sense, dumbest kind of strategy would have uh, done better than almost everything else in the in the market over that period of time. And mainly because that 60% in stocks is enough of that growth engine uh-huh. harnessing that compounding effect uh, historically in a, in a 10 to 11%. Yeah. You know, if you look at the median 30-year return, the S&P 500, it's about 11% compounded, a little higher than the 10% average we always yeah. hear about. And 40% is enough to allow you to sleep at night, I think, yeah. with the idea that, well, I, I'm never really going to earn any significant return yeah. at all yeah. from my bond portfolio, whether it's the 70s, 80s, 90s, or today, yeah. after taxes and inflation. Um, but, but, but that gives me though, the peace of mind yeah. to keep that 60% invested but younger for the long people, haul. Younger people probably would have gone 70, 30 or something of that sort, which would be even better. But Well, yeah. I mean, I, I personally, I don't know how you feel, but I get asked frequently, even by non-clients, you know, just young people yeah. taking in their first in their career and 401k plans or people that are in their 40s and still accumulating for a retirement in their 60s. Yeah. and. I look at their 401k plan, and they might be 60-40 or 50-50. And I'm saying, I, I just can't make a case for that. And so generally what I tell them is, hey, if you want to stay that way, and that's, if that's where your comfort level is, keep it. But at least take all your new money that you're contributing, and that should be going in dollar-cost averaging 100% equity. So I think it's, it's that you, you probably get tired of me hearing about the human behavior side of successful investing or, or failed investing. Um, but it seems like that's the only thing that can get in the way of a lifetime of, of, of investment success right. is interrupting, frequently interrupting, compounding. Right. Uh, and that seems to be a mistake. And that those interruptions are driven by the short term, um, which seem to have a big effect on the human brain. Right. Uh, I don't know how you fix that. I, I, don't, I, don't, I think it's hundreds of millions of years of, of adapting and learning how to survive on the savanna on the savannah, right. you know, with the fight or flight instinct. And some of those instincts, I guess, work against investing. Right. All right. So unemployment, I thought this was interesting. It's better than I thought. On Friday, the DO, Department of Labor, the DOL, released state-by-state unemployment rate for data for October. It was really kind of, it was interesting. I didn't bring the whole article here, but 
Um, and they showed that the U.S. employment unemployment rate was 6.9%, but as the chart that they put in there, nearly half, 24, of all states have an unemployment rate below 6%, a common threshold of high unemployment. 12 of those states have unemployment rate below 5%, including four states below 4%. Iowa and South Dakota at 3.6%, Vermont at 3.2%, and Nebraska at 3 And in 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 so it's kind of giving thought to, well, maybe this $600 extra unemployment is maybe not timely now. Right. But yet there's still proposals in the mill that would, would do that. Um, but under the past legislation that they tried to pass, only about half the number of yeah. people, based on the metrics that they put in there, what's, you know, right. what's high unemployment versus... Right. But the other thing, I think it's probably time, though, to pull the plug on uh, supporting businesses that aren't... Uh, Successful in, in a sense that uh, there had there has to be some long term adjustments. But airlines have to adjust to a new level for several at least several years and maybe longer than that. So again, we can't we, we have to uh, start making some hard choices about uh, when do you support just to maintain uh, the economy and when do you uh, pull the plug in, in terms of getting resources to shift where they're they're uh, going to be used most uh, effectively. Well, that kind of leads me to my next section. I wanted to talk to you about it. I, I read an article. Uh, oh, let me say one, one thing before. Uh, I mean, again, uh, you know, uh, uh, 2020 is a, a, a Queen Elizabeth and Annis or Elvis, uh, the horrible yeah. year. But uh, think of it. If someone told you on, on uh, January 1st, we're going to have – a, uh, a virus situation right. unlike anything we've had for over a hundred years. We're going to have the the sharpest drop in uh, in employment, the biggest rise in unemployment we probably ever had in history, and we're going to have a shutdown for for several months. And at the end of the year, we're going to have resurgence of the of the uh, virus, uh, and you say, but uh, we'll end the year with unemployment down around six or seven percent. Stock market will be at all time high. Uh, no one would have uh, believed that. So. I would have said, "Pass the weed." Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, isn't that then the post? Isn't 2020 the poster child of saying this is why it's fool's errand to try to time the market and forecast what's going to happen ahead of time? Right. As opposed to just saying, "Yeah, if someone told you all this information, you say, well, obviously you want to get out and go right. all into cash.'" Uh, because it can't can't be good. But it turned out it uh, surprisingly it uh, wasn't as bad as we thought. I think that's I think that's because we most of us do not study history uh, as much as we should. That shows that just like every other emergency in the past, we either solve it or we learn to live with it. Um, just the technology that's been developed. I mean, to do something in one year that normally takes five to ten. Of course, you know we're. You were completely deconstructing people's DNA, you know, quickly now, and it used to take forever. Um, This underestimation of the the adjustments that corporate America can make and how rational capital is. Um, I suspect the reason the stock market is above 30,000 today and all these things have happened is... You you talk about it frequently. It's discounting of the future. Right. I think 2021, in my eyes, is kind of a boring year. It's nothing great. Maybe it's not even average stock returns, yeah. 5 6 7%. I don't know. But yeah. if gun to the head, if I had to guess, I'd probably be in, <clears throat> be in that area. 
But I think ultimately they're looking out past and saying 2022 could be really interesting from an earnings standpoint. So could 2021, by the way. I saw this after 2008, 2009 personally because I have a number of friends that manage or own significantly large companies with hundreds or thousands of employees and many of them. And they basically told me, look, 2008, 2009, that great financial crisis was the cover to get rid of all the fat that we had that we knew we had. It was just too painful and good times to get rid yeah. of people and get rid of, you know, doing things. I think I think this is one of the reasons that people underestimate the power of the comeback of the stock market is because if earnings, if the revenues just get back to where they were, they're probably going to be a lot more profitable because they've really improved their margins. Right. And I think that's why even at the same earnings level, the stock market can be higher than people thought it could be. It's just my right. my kooky thought. Well, I think all, uh, some of that, though, has been already captured. I think people are looking ahead now. I mean, it's, you, you'd have to ask why has why the uh, market been so strong the last several weeks when we have a resurgence of the virus? And, and the answer is probably because we expect the uh, vaccine to come yeah. next year. So, you know, something happens and the vaccines don't pan out. That's, there's obviously downside risk. But and since the uh, vaccine announcements uh, three or four weeks ago, the first one, it's been interesting to see what's developed in the stock market. It's been a real transition, where they call it a rotation, from certain sectors to other sectors. As yeah, we, high tech is not. As you know, the high tech's been blowing. If you weren't in high tech, you looked terrible as, yeah. a, as a money manager, particularly. And uh, suddenly, yeah. it's much more broad-based. It's yeah. the small caps have really gone in gangbusters. Yeah. Now, Democrat, I've read this. I don't know if it's true. I haven't verified it, but I've read it several times. So it must be true, right? <laughs> and it was on the Internet. Um, that Democratic administrations tend to favor smaller companies. And I, it kind of intuitively maybe makes sense to me. Well, I mean, there are small companies and small companies. I don't think they, they uh, uh, care too much about the mom and pop uh, oh, I, stories. Yeah, but, yeah but I'm really the, a small the, public company the, the, like, in general. And so the, the high-tech ones are, yeah. are more, more aligned to their way of thinking. And, you know, it uh, used to be uh, actually uh, Atari Democrats. Uh, that, that sounds like uh, yeah. a blast from the past uh, 20, 30 years ago. So they were always kind of interested in the uh, exotic. Yeah. So suddenly now there's been this rotation where value stocks, which are lower price stocks that yeah. are profitable, uh, just trading at different metrics, small companies, small value, these things have just... Yeah. But I, I, t I told my sons and my son-in-law, I said, you guys have to re recognize that Apple by itself this was about a month ago, yeah. has a larger market capitalization than the Russell 2000, which is yeah. <laughs> it, you, you take the top 3,000 companies by size, throw out the top 1,000, those are the big companies, and then the next 2,000, 2 and 3,000 are small companies. Yeah. One stock is larger than that whole universe. So when these rotations happen, all of a sudden there's an awful lot of money going into a very tight spot. Yeah. And it, for instance, in the last decade, U.S. small value uh, doubled. It went well. Yeah. Went up more than that. It went up two hundred percent. Yeah, roughly. I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm pro approximately. I, I can't remember for sure. But isn't Tesla the um, largest cap automobile company in the world? I think it is. I think <laughs> maybe sells, bigger uh, than right. many of them put together. And he's the second second richest person now. And, and it sells practically, practically no cars compared to <laughs> correct and no big earnings. And Zoom doesn't really have earnings. There's all kinds of yeah. these gr growth stocks that just really gone up really well. Yeah. They basically have little or no earnings. It's all on the if come. Yeah. And you can go buy these financial companies and these value value companies, highly profitable, yeah. kind yeah. of in the trenches businesses, yeah. much more profitable. Uh, 
for pennies in the dollar. Rel- yeah. on a, well, yeah. it's well, probably one thing, I, we, we may be leading people astray here because it sounds like we're uh, stock pickers. But the, 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 the bottom line is it I'm make, observing. It, it doesn't make any difference. I mean, t- to me, I, I never think about value versus uh, growth or whatever. So you don't uh, compartmentalize it all. You just no. basically take a broad – yeah. Uh, because I think sometimes my sons and I confuse people. We'll say, well, we basically own every stock in there, yeah. but not in a market cap weighting. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're generally about two-thirds tilted towards value stocks right. as opposed to market-like Just stocks. by size of the firm, though. But the, that's price the, to book. Yeah. Um, and, and broadly, you know, we own the whole category through uh, an index-like fund. And then we own micro-caps. And our small-cap yeah. exposure is probably much larger than but the typical. My investors. argument would be that's – what you're doing is moving along the, the yield curve. You're, you're taking on a little bit more risk. Oh, for with, sure. With, it's a story uh, of risk. With uh, justifiable return. Hopefully. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. You know, it's kind of there's – you have the expected return that yeah. all the academics talk about, and then there's the unexpected yeah. return, which but, is the reality. Not, but you're not choosing stocks. You're just choosing according to – We're just uh, saying, uh, look, uh, there's enough research that says if you want to reach for higher expected returns in a stock portfolio, then there's really – only a few ways to do it that have any empirical support that said it might maybe it's sensible maybe there are some return premiums that you could expect for taking on additional risk those are value companies well value companies are riskier than growth companies and it makes an intuitive story to me and so if they're riskier they should theoretically compensate you more and they have historically with some horrible periods in between like the last 10 years Uh, small companies same story they're riskier Um, they have to there has to be an incentive to buy a very small company as yeah. opposed to a very large company because chances are 10 years from now that very large company is li- more likely to be around than the very small company. So investors are rational. They they say, hey, I can get historically 10% a year in large companies. Uh, you got to do a lot better than that if you want me to invest in yeah. your small company. I want to circle back. You talked about all all the spending that's going on uh this year for the recent there seems to be a limitless appetite on on somewhat both sides both sides and we're rapidly b- piling on some pretty big deficits i'm not freaked out about it but uh this fellow named maudlin who's i've read his stuff before that's his last name i, I didn't bring the whole article because um kind of a bearish spin on you know way he sees all the debt that's being yeah. piled on you've seen this stuff before over right. and over and i have too i've heard it for 37 years and hasn't kept me from investing in the stock market but he, he was quoting dudley uh bill dudley who was a, one of the fed maybe still is uh is he the dallas fed guy for fed chairman yeah. maybe um it's some comments from that uh, he wants more emphasis on the fiscal policy and not central banks you've talked about that you've yeah. said look and basically he's saying we're on a slope where, uh, where monetary policy has become increasingly ineffective in promoting real economic growth. Every crisis was met with monetary easing that caused debt and other imbalances to accumulate over time, and that caused the next crisis to be bigger than the previous one. True, the Fed had no choice but to step in to prevent a financial meltdown, but this meltdown only happened because of the monetary policy followed over previous years. First yeah. of all, what's your take on that? I mean, well, I, I, I'm not that? sure about the, the what's going to happen in the future, but I think the the problem is. Do you think that, that this constant Fed uh, well, it, it, intervention uh, makes things worse, potentially? Sure, it, it, potentially, but it hasn't. I mean, it's hard to. The, the old argument would have been well, uh, they're just uh, building up inflation and we're going to have this huge wave of inflation. We heard that in yep. 2008 oh. and nine. It didn't happen and, and so on. So, again, again it, it's the potential. I think it 
will come at some point, but the question is when. But it's really a kind of asymmetry in uh, the, the politics of the situation. It's always uh, a good idea if you have a downturn to, to have an expansive, expansive policy and an easy money policy as we did in 2007 to 2009 as we did uh, starting in uh, February, March of this year. So yeah. it's a, a perfectly justified policy. The problem is that the other side of the coin is that there's times when you want austerity, and austerity is a much less uh, popular thing politically. Raising interest rates and uh, cutting back on spending is not, not necessarily a popular, a popular thing. So we had a period of uh, from uh, early 2010s until about a year ago or so when we should have been kind of catching up and getting our house in order. In fact, we were going in the opposite direction. So my, my fear is that we're not going to have the discipline to go back and do yeah. what needs to be done at, at some future point. So I don't, I don't think right now we need higher interest rates or uh, more uh, austerity in terms no, of uh, fiscal policy, but we do it at some point. Yeah. Let's go to Stan on line one. Stan, how are you doing today? Stan, are you with us? Oh, gotcha. I'm with you. Yes, sir. Um, Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving a little early. Well, thank you, you. Same to you. I, I have I have a little serious question I hope you can answer for me because I'm just as curious as heck about it. And I wondered if there was any studies done to uh, determine how many people burnt through their entire 401ks uh, because of the financial collapse and the loss of jobs that occurred and 2007 and 8 and 9. Has anybody done a, a, a study of that? i got to believe there are. St- I, I haven't seen one. Uh, you've piqued my interest, actually. Yeah. I can tell you anecdotally, I saw it over and over and over again because, uh, you know, prospective clients walk through my door. I don't know what that tells us anything. Um, but we do, we do know that the only part that I have seen are some studies out of Fidelity that showed that a lot of people over 65 completely changed their portfolio this most recent crisis and went, yeah. went to bonds. But that's not what you're asking. You're, you're asking how many people depleted somewhat or entirely yeah. their 401k balance. And my, what would your guess be, Fred, if, uh, without I, I would, a study? I, I would guess uh, not that many uh, because of the intervention on the part of the government where there, there were – Anecdotal studies about people actually having higher incomes, a combination of the most recent crisis, yeah, right? But the other thing is, I think stands right though that if you have uh, you know six thousand dollars in a four hundred one k, it doesn't take very much to deplete that. The real question is, are people depleting substantial amounts? So if you have you know uh, very small amounts of savings, right. I, I would suspect which most people do. Some people might go in there and and. Uh, uh, rate it, but again, it probably doesn't make that, that much difference to them in the long run if they didn't have much there to begin with. What what made you think about that, Stan? Well, I've thought about it since 2009 uh, because I think that number is substantial, and I think that because because we have a conservative uh, media and they didn't want blame to be heaped on uh, W for the financial crisis. I think that uh, that that information's not being passed around. Now, maybe that's too much of a conspiracy thing. Well, other than you, you kind of lost me at conservative media. Well, I think you're going uh, to. <laughs> because yeah, all we've been we hearing. We do have a conservative media. We do have a conservative media. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm, not, I'm not even really trying to spar. I'm just saying 
that it's almost it's almost to hear it is shocking because all I've heard, whether it's true or not, I'm just saying all I've been bombarded with is how the media is so yeah. liberal and doing the bidding for the Democrats. Well, I don't know who. I'm not sure it's true. I, there, there are organizations like the Investment uh, Institute, like a trade organization of uh, of uh, That's mutual funds and things, and mm-hmm. they probably have information about that. But I suspect that. Again, uh, people change their plans, and uh, if, if you find you lost your job, and yeah, you may end up working more and taking some out of your, you know, working longer, not retiring as soon, or taking out, out money. A whole host of things might happen there, so I yeah. wouldn't be surprised. But, but again, there uh, for younger people, there's a substantial penalty, and it's not easy to do necessarily to take it out unless they use the Roth. Yeah. But yeah. but still, Stan, here's what I think. I suspect that it impacted. Uh, People on the lower end of the economic uh, ladder. I, I think it, the impact would would just. This, I'm speculating, but my guess is it really hurt lower earners and people with low balances, which is yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, it's strange. We, we talk about politics not making as much difference, but if you look at the uh, period from uh, Obama taking office until Trump came in. As you just said a little bit earlier, it was a, a huge gain for the stock market, and yet inequality increased, and uh, and similarly low income people were unhappy with their their situation. So you had a in the early days a Democratic president, a Democratic Congress, and yet things were uh, getting uh, better for the uh, high income people and worse for the low income people. So politics well can't always change the way the uh, the economy works. I think that probably says more about both sides of the aisle are are rooting for you know. A lot of the politicians have found themselves in the wealthier class, and I, I, I'm not so sure that the lower yeah. middle class that anybody's really looking out for them on either side. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure if you were trying to look out for them. What exactly you do either? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. What else, Dan? Well, let me <clears throat> let me answer your question, sort of that you didn't actually ask, but you implied that there's a. Uh, that you've always heard there's only a liberal media? Well, well my life experience suggests to me that that's probably the case. The conservatives have been trying to get people to falsely believe that for a long time. That way they have that straw dog that they can uh, keep pushing down and yada, yada, yada. But if you look at reality, we have reality that went from uh, just under 100 uh, companies to reach 85% of the population in 1980 and Ronald Reagan's refusal to uh, enforce uh, monopoly laws, uh, it now takes six. And you now have literally organizations such as the One American Network that is nothing but a bunch of sycophants for uh, right-wing extremist policies. All right, Stan, i got to get away from the show now. i I got to diverge. I let you say it, though. Okay. All right, Stan. Happy Thanksgiving, pal. Uh, I just looked at the clock, and I'm like, hey, we only have eight or nine minutes. But uh, an answer, though, is that uh, when you open up the airwaves, you get a lot of diversity. Uh, In the old days, you just get Life Magazine and Time, and that was about it. Now there are a zillion different magazines. There's no life and no time to speak of anymore. So the same thing has happened on the the radio and television. It used to be three networks, and it kind of came through a certain way, and now they're – uh, a million different options you have, and some and they, you can find what you want, and they attune to the, their audience. Oh, well, yeah, it, it, I guess I'm just trying to be practical, not really trying to opine about whether it's right or wrong. It strikes yeah. me that the majority of TV yeah. stations, cable, and etc., yeah. 
I'm sufficiently convinced that they're probably yeah. a little more lenient. Anyway, it gets boring. We've heard, we've been hearing that for years now. I'm tired of it. Um, so, anyway, I'm going to go back to Bill Dudley because and I don't want to forget to mention my daily bread thing. So, really, time got away. A couple things I want to that I look at the stuff Paul prepared. Roth conversions for this year. A lot of people do, did find themselves with lower taxable income, yeah. and they ought to have a conversation with their financial advisor or their CPA or their enrolled agent to see if it would make some sense by being yeah. in a lower tax bracket to do some Roth conversion. And also with your required minimum distribution, you don't have to do it this year. You Correct. could use that to go into a, a Roth conversion. I've done a lot of that. So the other thing you want to be thinking about is if you have any tax losses, maybe harvest those. And also don't forget about ta- taxable gains that are unrealized that if you are if you can do those and you're at a level where you pay 0% interest and increase your basis, it might make some sense. So those are little matrix that we go through for yeah, every one, client. One, I, I think sure. I say the same thing every year, but if you're buying into a mutual fund, make sure that the oh, uh, that's, capital gains have been declared already. Yeah. So what Fred's mentioning is this is we're going into the season late November, early December, where the majority of capital gains are paid out uh, in stock mutual funds and real estate mutual funds. And if you're in buying them in a taxable account, just a brokerage account, a non-tax privileged account, you don't want to buy a mutual stock mutual fund one day and get a big distribution the next day that you have to pay tax on, and you're no better off financially. You're, you're, you treaded water, but now you have this tax bill. So just just be aware of that. It's just something to think about. Um, one of the things it looks like I was looking up the Biden tax plan, not on a political, just yeah. kind of to see what, what's in there. Um, have you seen anything in there that really bothers you? I mean, well, that strikes you as counterproductive? Well, again, higher tax, slightly higher tax rates are not a disaster. Let's go um, from 37 to 39.6 is where we were, uh, right? There's some uh, pretty uh, major ones that aren't going to happen. Uh, getting rid of the uh, special treatment of capital gains is probably not going to uh, come about, you know, taxing at, at ordinary income rates. Uh, I don't think we're going to go to Four hundred thousand dollars with Social Security uh, uh, above four four hundred thousand. You have to no, pay no, on Social Security. No, no, from now it's around one hundred and thirty or something. Yeah, yeah. one hundred forty-two for twenty-one twenty twenty-one. They would go up to to go up to four hundred. Be a huge. Uh, uh, <laughs> way I read the plan, though, I just oh. I read it today. If I'm reading the right in it, I forget what site. It seemed credible, and I'm, I think it was. It says after you get through that for twenty twenty-one. Oh. 142 up to 140, there's that, like this donut hole, you don't. But once you're on four, any dollar above 400, then once again gets, oh, gets taxed. I, I guess I, I didn't read this. I didn't read uh, it carefully. Yeah. Apparently, uh, that's the first time I've ever been able to correct you in all these years. I'm not correcting you either, by the way, because I'm not going to make a big bet that what I read was right. Uh, clearly, they'd like to increase corporate tax rates, and I think that's right. popular with lots of people. Uh, probably half the people or more. Um, Going to do some pretty big boost to uh, ch- child independent tax credits, ch- child care tax credits. They really want. They talk like they want to eliminate the step up in basis, so they reduce. From what I'm reading, reduce. Right now, you get a lifetime yeah. exemption of eleven million seven for a couple married filing jointly. So if you're under that estate when you die, probably no gift or inheritance no. taxes. Um, maybe cut that in half, but at the same time. <laughs> Excuse me. Eliminate the step up in basis when people die. And that, yeah, the, the, that, that can impact a lot of just regular. That's people. That's a huge thing that uh, 
uh, people don't really realize when, when they talk about someone like uh, Warren Buffett paying uh, a lower tax rate than his uh, secretary, if they really knew it would be a almost a, a, a huge amount lower because right. uh, most really rich people uh, never pay taxes on their capital gains because they either give it away or they uh, uh, bequeath it to someone. And again, <clears throat> the way it works, which makes no economic sense, is that if you sell an asset that has an appreciated gain before you die, you pay tax on the increase in the value. If, if you die and pass along after death, the new owners uh, take it at that new value and that capital gain disappears forever. So from the, standard tax, standard, uh, from the standpoint of tax policy, it doesn't make much sense, but it's been there so long that it's very difficult to get, get rid of. And in fact, it was gotten rid of for about 12 months or so in the, in the 1970s, and there was so much uproar that they went back to the, the old way of doing it. So, again, with, with 50 votes or 51 votes, that's not going to happen. Uh, so I don't think – Okay. Uh, but you're, you're, you, you don't think it's a fundamentally bad idea to eliminate the step-up basis? I don't. From an economic – Well, there's always a transition issue. I, 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 I think it would, it would be good to have more privatization of Social Security, but you can't do that now because we're already in it. So I think – you might do it prospectively, and any increase in value starting with the bill would would not be subject to a stepped-up basis. So, again, <clears throat> if I was starting a, uh, a new okay. 50 years ago, yeah. I, I would do it. But now I think it's a, a difficult question. Yeah, it's going to be maybe less interesting years, the uh, next four years. Was, uh, uh, you know, it seemed like it would be, probably be a little quieter. Yeah. But you never know about these surprises, you know, right. wars break out and – uh, again, history is the study yeah. of surprises, and yeah, thought, risk is the things we didn't take into account, the things that come out of the left yeah. field, out of the blue. Yeah, I thought George W. Bush's term would be really boring. I didn't think he wanted to do very much. <laughs> and, and we had, well, on paper, uh, that'd probably be a reasonable expectation. And we had 9-11 and the, and the war in uh, Iraq, so you never know. Yeah, at least we didn't get in any wars the last four years in yeah. any material sense. Seemed to be unwinding that. Right. That's good. Maybe that'd be good. That'd be a peace dividend, Fred. Sure. I would think. Oh, we always talked about Reagan's peace dividend, you know, peace through strength, and that ultimately, yeah. you know, brought the darn commies down and <laughs> got that big peace dividend and had to, we could yeah. quit spending all that money. Well, Fred, I appreciate you being on the show today and bailing me out. Um, people remember, I meant to talk about this more, but the Daily Bread Soup Kitchen has a knapsack drive. They gave out over 800 backpacks last oh. year. I think they're going to try to do something a little differently. You can go to dailybreadsoupkitchen.com, but it's really important. My sons and I have been over there and helped out a time or two, and, uh, boy, the need is bigger than I ever thought. I mean, it's pretty incredible. You had a whole session a year ago. We did. And, uh, boy, it gets your attention. It's kind of like you hear about these things, but until you – I would have never thought that there's really that many people that come to the Daily Bread Soup Kitchen, and it's that or nothing probably that day. So just just salt-of-the-earth people doing the work over there. They're doing God's work over there, and they, they need some help financially. And if you can do that, go to Daily Bread Soup Kitchen. I'm not a paid, provi- I'm not a paid sponsor for that. Anyway, Fred, have, uh, say hi to Donna. Have a happy Thanksgiving and stay safe. Wear your mask. Thank you. And thank, happy Thanksgiving to everybody out there. We'll be back in a couple weeks for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Thanks. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign Urbana.